Well, a few years ago, there was a member of Trinity who was really passionate about outdoor adventure, and he knew that I was leading our young adult ministry. And so he asked me, hey, would you like to arrange a moonlight snowshoeing event for our, our college age, our young adults in the church? And when somebody asks you that, you just say yes. So we figured it out. We just planned a weekend, uh, got together a group of young adults. We, we rented and borrowed a bunch of snowshoes, and then we carpooled up to Jones Pass off of Highway 40. And really the start of a hike like that is actually not very fun. It's the dead of winter. It's pitch blackout. You're already starting above 10,000 feet. So you're bundled up and, and cold. And then as you get going, you get really hot because you're snowshoeing uphill through the trees. And there's nothing really to look at at the start because of those trees. All you can see is what's illuminated in front of you by your headlamp. But if you stick with it, it is so worth it. And after about 30, 45 minutes of snowshoeing, we came out into this clearing and we had this amazing vista of the stars. I mean, we could see the whole Milky Way galaxy above our heads and it was incredible. We turned our headlamps off. We just sat down and shared some hot chocolate we brought in a thermos and just enjoyed this amazing vista. And we're, we're caught up in awe at God's glory at how beautiful his creation is. And there's a lot of those kinds of opportunities in Colorado. Maybe you're thinking about when you climbed a 14er and you had this view over a valley. Maybe you're thinking about a camping trip, a backpacking trip that you've been on. Maybe you're just thinking about sitting outside on your back porch. There are so many opportunities in Colorado to enjoy the beauty of God's world, to be captivated by it. And I've often spoken to our teenagers about spiritual pathways, different ways that we find to connect with the heart of God, to feel near to him, to grow in love and devotion to him. And nature is one of those pathways. And I think sometimes we can raise the question like, is it really? Or is that just like a bunch of Christians who are outdoor enthusiasts want it to be? But no, it really is biblical. This summer, we've been working through the book of Psalms, been re reminding ourselves that the Psalms are the original prayer book of the church. They were the prayer book of Jesus. And we've been looking at them as a way to free up our devotional life, be it with these prayers, these words from God, so that we can simply come to him with greater joy, with greater love, with greater trust. And today, we're looking at Psalm 8, which reminds us that nature really is this pathway to loving, to delighting in God, but it's also so much more than that. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm 8. We're gonna see three things in our text this morning. First, when we look at nature, when we look at God's creation, we are led to praise him. Secondly, when we look at God's creation, we are led to contemplate his great love for us. And then finally, when we look at creation, we're ultimately led to praise his amazing grace for us. And all summer long, I've been encouraging you to memorize the Psalms with me as I preach them. We've been talking about how having these prayers in your mind, on your heart, is powerful for your own devotional life. It, it means that this prayer is at hand, ready to be used when you need it. So if you memorize it, the next time you go on a camping trip, the next time you go on a hike, maybe you can pray it as you're walking. Maybe you can pray it as you're going. So I'm trying to recite from memory. It's not about perfection. It's about getting the word of God on my heart. So follow along with me. Psalm 8 from the ESV. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, the Psalm of David. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth." So the first thing we see in our psalm this morning is when we look at nature, we are led to praise God. And I want to start with a little theological caveat here. Natural theology is not enough to have a saving relationship with God. No matter how much you love hiking, no matter how much you love philosophy, for that matter, trying to observe God, trying to contemplate God in your own strength will never lead you to a saving relationship with him. You may be an avid outdoorsman, but no matter how much beauty you take in, you will never encounter the Trinitarian God. No matter how much you pursue God in philosophy, trying to know him with your mind, you will not know the personal God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who has become human to deal with our sins and to reconcile us to himself. You can't build your theology upon general revelation the world around us, the, the, the subject of natural theology. Instead, you must build your faith on special revelation, on the word of God. If you would know God, he must reveal himself to you. That's why we start with the scriptures. And that's actually where David starts. David starts there in the second word of his psalm. He's saying, oh, Yahweh, using the personal name of God. We talked about that last week, how significant it is. Every time a psalmist doesn't simply say God, but Yahweh, the personal name of God. David's starting place is a personal relationship with God. He doesn't look at nature and therefore know God. He already knows God. And then when he looks at nature, he can give his God praise and glory that is due his name. And the same is true for us. And there's two big reasons why that matters. The first is you can't let a hopeful, natural theology stop you from evangelizing. Paul gets at this at length in Romans 10. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Because again, no matter how much someone tries to take in from the natural world, they will not know Jesus if they're not preached to, if the gospel isn't presented to them. And so we need to be those people who go, who evangelize, who share the good news of Jesus. But then secondly, According to David, if you have this saving relationship with God, if you truly know him, then you can interpret the natural world in a way that an unbeliever can't. You can see God's hand, God's fingerprints on the world in a way that someone who doesn't know Jesus cannot. And there's two things in the first two verses of our Psalm that David highlights in, in particular. First, that God is king. And second, that God rules over chaos. The first is rather obvious. We think of God as king. It's one of the basic images of the Bible. And you hear it in this word, majestic. 
Even today, monarchies, monarchs are called his or her majesty. And so we see in this language that, that God is being exalted as king and his kingdom is more basic, more primary than any other kingdom in the history of the world because he didn't inherit his kingdom. He made it out of nothing. He created all that exists. And so he is the rightful king of the universe. And so that is why we can look up to the heavens above or down to the earth below, whatever we see in all creation, it belongs to God. It was made by him and for him. And so we can give God praise when we look at nature. This is not a new idea. This is really, you know, we're in Colorado, probably all of you are familiar with this spiritual pathway of delighting in God through nature, but it is so important, it bears repeating. If you would grow your love for God, if you would grow your devotion to God, get outside. <laughs> a few years ago, Megan and I had the opportunity to go on a backpacking trip in uh, Grand Teton National Park, and it was absolutely stunning. If you've never been, you need to go, whether you like camping or not, it's just amazing. But this first day of our backpacking trip, I remember thinking that it just wasn't gonna be that good because we were gonna be far south of the Tetons themselves. They weren't gonna be in view. And I knew it was just gonna be a kind of an uphill slog all day. But it actually ended up being just incredible because we basically hiked for eight hours through fields of wildflowers. No exaggeration, millions, if not hundreds of millions of flowers. And I had this David-like moment of awe at God's glory, at God's beauty, realizing that God had given life to every single one of these flowers and they were giving glory back to him in their beauty. And so maybe you're thinking about that moment recently, maybe this summer, where you were just, your, your breath was taken away. You were caught up in the glory of God and gave him praise. That's a pretty familiar idea. But the idea that's less familiar is, is that God rules over chaos. We turn to verse two and, and we're kind of confused. It seems out of left field. Why is David talking about crying babies? How do crying babies establish strength? How is this related to what we're talking about, David? And really the answer lies in the identity of this, these foes, the enemy, the avenger. David is not talking about humans who are pursuing his life. You see that a lot in other Psalms. Instead, he's talking about the powers of chaos. You see, in the rest of the Old Testament, there's this, this cosmology, this, this idea that God, when he created the universe, overcame the powers of chaos. And they're often talked about as the floods, the great deep, the sea monsters, the Leviathan. They're, they're imaged as, as the powerful sea, which rages against man. And then we hear in Revelation that when God creates all things new again, makes the new heavens and the new earth, the sea will be no more because chaos will be ultimately finally vanquished. And so it's an unfamiliar cosmology idea to us that, that God had to conquer the powers of chaos, but it's all over the Old Testament. And that's what David is talking about. And that brings us to the crying babies. Here's the idea. A crying infant, a crying baby is the sign, the symbol of God's life-giving love. A sign and a symbol of God's power over chaos, of his power over death, of his power over suffering. And so parents with young children in the room, when your baby cries, it is a sign and symbol of God's glory and his power 
over chaos. So two quick application points for you all this morning. I've already kind of said one. Get outside. I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You guys love to get outside. We know it. Our attendance is down this summer. You're out camping and hiking and getting out in nature and good. You're supposed to be out there and seeing God's glory, seeing his majesty and giving him praise. I, I'm repeating it again and again. This is a very real and important spiritual pathway for you to grow in love and delight for God. So go on a hike, go buy a telescope and look at the stars, go camp in the backyard, go enjoy nature. But I will say, don't go on Sunday morning. That's a little, that's a little incongruous. The second point is you need to delight in children, not just your children, all children. Once again, there, there are a million reasons why that should be the case, but we're just gonna talk about what Psalm 8 said. You should delight in children because they are the sign and symbol of God's power over evil and chaos and death that God is powerful to give life, that he's overflowing with love, that when we feel overwhelmed by the chaos in our life, it does not have the final word. Our children are a reminder of the life and power and goodness of God. And I wanna take a quick moment to speak to women in the room who are struggling with infertility or pregnancy loss, because I know some of you and I know there's a lot more that I'm not aware of. And every time somebody struggles with infertility, it's a tragedy. And every time there's a miscarriage, it's absolutely devastating. And these things are worth mourning and weeping and crying over. And the Psalms of lament give us so much language for that. We are permitted to cry, to weep, to mourn that loss. But I don't want you to hear in this text that God is locked in some kind of eternal struggle with chaos, as, as, as if every time a family can't have a child or loses a, a child, chaos is winning. And every time a healthy baby is born, God is winning. That's not the picture here. God stands over and above all the chaos we are experiencing. He is victorious over it. And so maybe you can't hear this morning the admonition to delight in other families' children, and that's okay. Start where you are. Start where you can. It is okay to mourn and lament, but know that our God is a father who knows the pain of losing a child. He sees you, he is near to you, and he loves you. Look back at our text one more time. We're gonna focus in on that theme of God's great love. We're gonna look at verses three through eight. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, all that passes along the paths of the seas. The first thing we see in Psalm 8 is when we look at nature, we are meant to give God praise. But second, when we look at nature, we're supposed to go further. 
We're supposed to contemplate God's great love for us. Do you see this turn that David makes? He doesn't stop with looking out there and praising God. He looks out there and then he looks in here. He looks at the vastness of the heavens, the vastness of God's power and majesty, and then he looks at himself and he says, what am I? I don't know if you're passionate about space or not. If you're a nerd like me, I think outer space is really incredible. It's amazing. So I'm gonna nerd out for a moment. Just tune me out if you're bored. Uh, but the nearest star to our star is Proxima Centauri, and it's 4.24 light years away. The fastest moving ever man-made object was a probe that NASA sent to study the sun. And because it was being pulled in by the sun's gravitational pull, it reached a, a max speed of 150,000 miles an hour. Now, if we could build a spaceship that continuously traveled at 150,000 miles an hour to go to Proxima Centauri, it would take 19,000 years. That's how big outer space is, the nearest star. And David calls the heavens the work of God's fingers, not the work of his hands. You can build a shed, you can build a house for that matter with your hands. He's talking about the work of God's fingers, like God is sitting down to build a model airplane. <laughs> the work of God's fingers. So David is just getting absolutely blown away by the bigness of the universe, and even more than that, the majesty and power of God who is bigger than the entire universe. And then he looks to himself, he says, what am I that you care for me, that you love me? And we need to make the same turn to seeing how much God loves us, how much God has honored us, how much God has given us glory. I think we often understand the section of the text talking about being given dominion, is a common Christian teaching that we have been given responsibility over God's creation, but I think we often miss the honor and the glory. So in verse five, two things I want you to notice. One, the ESV does a bad job translating Elohim. The Hebrew Elohim is the most common word translated God in your Bible. And here, the, the ESV is taking the lead of the Septuagint where it says angels. And Elohim can mean angels or messengers or heavenly beings, but more basically, it simply means God. I think a better translation is, you have made me a little lower than yourself. You have made me a little lower than God. And the big idea there is there's not this whole strata of heavenly beings that are more glorious than us, that are between God and us. No, think about it. Right now in heaven, at the right hand of the throne of God the Father is the man, Jesus Christ. For all eternity, humanity will reign with God. That is the glory and honor that God has bestowed upon us. And I think we, we miss that. And then secondly, God has crowned us. He has made us kings and queens. We don't often think about this either because we don't live in a monarchy. That God is this, this emperor of the universe and he has set us up as kings and queens over the, the regions of his rule and reign that we have been given to give him honor and glory. But, but we have also in that been given so much significance. We have been honored. We have been glorified. And so I want you to hear there this great significance, this honor, this glory that God has given you. 
When you look out at the world, you're meant to be put at pause as you realize that this is the world that God gave you because he loves you and cares for you and has honored you. Some of the, the worst things ever said about us are what we say in our own internal dialogues. The insults, the, the abuse, the, the shame that we heap on ourselves are a dishonor to the glory, to the honor that God has given us. They are a dishonor to the one whom God loves, whom God cares for. And so part of the reason we need to get outside is not just to get a bigger perspective on God, but to get a bigger perspective on ourselves as beloved children, kings and queens in God's kingdom. Look back at the text one more time, just verse nine. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing we saw in our text this morning was that when we look at nature, we are meant to praise God. The second thing is when we look at nature, we're meant to contemplate his great love for us. And then finally, when we look at nature, we're also meant to see how amazing his grace for us is. This phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, is the start and the end of the psalm. But clearly its meaning has changed. In the first part, it's all about God's majesty as king of the universe. But then as we read it the second time, it's all about God's great love that he would honor and glorify us, small, insignificant me. But there's one more angle on this passage that we need to see from the New Testament. In Hebrews, we see this, this new angle that everything David has described here is not actually our daily experience. Not all things are in subjection to us. Not all things are under our rule and reign. Here's what he says, the, the author of Hebrews in chapter two, verses six through nine. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you hear that argument? We don't experience the world as in our control, as all things under our rule and dominion. In fact, we feel like the world is very chaotic and out of control. And the author of Hebrews says, in the face of that, what do we see? We see Jesus. And seeing Jesus rightly is the key to the fulfillment of Psalm 8. You see, outside of Christ, our eyes are blinded from seeing the glory and majesty of God in the universe. Outside of Christ, our eyes are blinded from seeing his loving and life-giving power in newborn children. Outside of Christ, we do not see how much he loves us, how much he has honored and glorified us, but we feel abandoned and forsaken in this world that is full of suffering and evil. Outside of Christ, we miss it. We are not ruling and reigning as we should, but in Jesus Christ, there is redemption. 
the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus who tasted death for each one of us, stands over and above the chaos of this world, over and above our feelings of abandonment, over and above whatever evils we're suffering, and reminds us that he is king. Jesus tasted death, ultimately, that he might destroy death. And later in Hebrews, he says that the power of chaos is death. Jesus conquered it. Jesus, the son of God, became man that he might redeem us from all this chaos that we suffer and experience day in and day out. And so unless you are looking to the face of Jesus, you won't experience Psalm 8 is true either. But when you know that he is king, that when we go into heaven with him or when he returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth with him, we will reign with him forever. Then you have hope and power to overcome whatever chaos and evil and suffering you face in this life. Because of Jesus and his great grace, we know we will rule with him. And you need to hear that, that piece that it was because of the grace of God. Why is there chaos in our world if God overcame it in creation? It's because we brought it back into the world. In our rebellion, in our refusing his kingdom, wanting to be kings and queens, not under his rule and authority, but apart from him, we brought this chaos and this evil and this suffering back into our world. And so it is sheer grace that God wouldn't cast us off, but would return to us, would suffer that evil himself, that he might again make us kings and queens. It is because of the grace of Jesus. And so when you go on your next hike, when you go on your next backpacking trip this winter when you go skiing or maybe just the next time you sit on your porch with a cup of coffee, remember that you were given this creation, all this beauty around you that you might praise God, but that you might go deeper than that, that you might see the infinite depths of God's love for you, that you might see the magnificence of his mercy and grace for sinners, that he would redeem you. Let this text move you to new heights of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do have blind eyes to your glory, to your majesty, to your love, to your grace. And so we pray, send us your Holy Spirit Enliven the eyes of our hearts that we might see fresh again, that we might see your goodness, your beauty, your majesty, but even more than that, your love and your grace for us. Give us a sight of Jesus today, we pray, O oh Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.